Let's pray and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful, grateful to be here. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love me. That you chose to show mercy, grace to me. When you show justice to others, but for whatever reason, God, you showed grace and mercy to me, and I thank you for that. I pray that the message today would make much of you, would bring you glory. pray that you would take my own foolishness out of the way, that you would use me to communicate clearly what you would have communicated. For your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I have really enjoyed the past messages the other Sundays. They were challenging, convicting. I definitely saw a theme in them, and it will also be the theme of today. You might have noticed from the worship, but uh, the theme in the last Sundays as well as today has been that idea of surrender, complete surrender to Christ our King complete abandonment to Him, all of our life, all of what we are, all of what we have, living to Him with extreme devotion. And I recently have been doing a study, my family and I, in the Gospels. Uh, We've been studying it as a family, and I've also been reading some books on the side on discipleship. And I have been very challenged. God has radically challenged my thinking in regards to what it means when Christ said, follow me. There's no doubt that as you read the Gospels, there's a lot of uh, teaching in the Gospels that could be considered radical or extreme that Christ tells us in regards to us following him, the cost of discipleship. And if I believe that to be true, which I do, um, if I believe this word, this, the Bible to be true, which I do, then that means that there will be radical implications for my life and for the life of my family. So, some time ago we went to, a, uh, we went to Mount Vernon and we went to a Voice of the Martyrs conference. We took several of the, quite a few youth, a lot of you guys were there, but While at that conference, one of the speakers said something very interesting. He said, every time that he returns back to the United States after a trip abroad to the persecuted church or the underground church, he said, it it amazes him because it is almost like we are not the same church, living for the same God, preaching the same gospel. And so, I mean, I remembered that statement. That's kind of a bold statement. And so I thought to myself, why is that? Why is it... find myself in the notes here. Why is it that there is such a disconnect between the teachings of Christ in the Gospels and what characterizes my life? as far as living it out. Okay? There is 
a big difference between Christ's message in the Gospels and what I see taking place around us. In the church in America, more general, the, maybe not necessarily all of these things in this church, but definitely in the broader church in America. So what does the Gospels reveal to us about Jesus' call to follow him? And what does Christ teach us about the cost of discipleship? And again, because of the inconsistencies in my own life as I studied this, I was deeply challenged with, do I really believe what this book says? Because there is such a contrast. So, um, Why is it that so many other brothers and sisters in other countries, they cherish God and his word above all else? sacrificing so much to have the Word of God, to read it, to study it together. You know what? I'm going to take my gum out, or I'm going to spit it. Sorry. I've got this tickle in my throat, and I don't think it's going to go away. But if I keep that gum in, Craig's going to get it on his face. So. But there's such a difference. These these believers... um, Doing, believing that Jesus is worthy of their devotion, considering it an honor to partake in his suffering. Believers like, you know, in Nigeria where, you know, this is, this is Nigeria's red letter edition of the scriptures, stained with the blood of the saints of their own body, their own church. You know, I think of this illustration happening in Indonesia. This is a seminary in Indonesia and This is what's required of their Bible school students before they can graduate. Before before they graduate, the students in this seminary are required to plant a church with at least 30 new baptized believers in a Muslim community. I was captivated by the humble yet confident look on their faces. Every one of them had fulfilled the church planting requirement. The most solemn part of the day was a moment of silence for two of their classmates who had died at the hands of their Muslim persecutors. And this is the kind of call to discipleship that Christ is talking about. And yet, you know, I I, I look at... Churches in America, and we're, we're lavished, and we're comfortable. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. We're lavished, and we're comfortable, and we really have no difficulty getting to church, no difficulty studying God's Word, getting study materials. Really, we have very little difficulty at all to be a Christian. Difficulties for us may include, oh, we have to go out another night a week for a church-related Ministry or meeting, right? And we, we complain because, oh, the fuel costs are killing us. And, oh, I'm exhausted. I mean, how many have been there? You're exhausted. You're spending money on fuel. If these are the, the least of our worry, I mean, if these are our struggles, these aren't struggles. These are just complaints. They're preferences. And the list goes on and on. There's a lot of them. A lot of frustrations and struggles that we would consider uh, challenges in the church for us in America. And in light of eternity, they, they really are quite insignificant. They're small. So why is it that some are willing to 
give all for the word of God and to share the gospel and others find it difficult to invite a friend to church to pray in public let alone share their faith with a complete stranger are we out of practice could be have we never started practicing maybe Could it be that we really do not understand the implications of Christ's call to his disciples, but more specifically, let's zero it in, to you and I as his disciples? Do we not really understand the implications of this call to follow him? Or maybe, maybe it is that we are more concerned with the things that are immediately surrounding our, our lives and impacting our lives than we are about the spiritual or the things of the Lord? Is it possible that our comfortable lives have lulled us into comfortable devotion? Because we live comfortably here. There's no doubt about that. Have we blindly or willingly embraced values and ideas that are common in our culture but are opposed to or inconsistent to the gospel Christ taught. One such example, and I may step on some toes here, that isn't my intent. There's nothing wrong with some of this stuff. One such example would be, I don't know how else to explain it other than, to title it other than, The American Dream. And that would consist of getting a good education, the security of a great job, the comfort of a nice home, and a retirement awaiting us when we are older so that the last 15, 20 years of our life we can kind of step back and relax. And while there's nothing wrong with much of this, Nowhere in Jesus' teaching on the cost of discipleship does he push or promote these values. And we push them and promote them hardcore in the church and in the secular world. (coughs) Jesus doesn't say, yes, I want you to spend thousands of dollars and years of your life getting a great education so that I can use you. No. No. Jesus says, you go and do what I want and I will use you dynamically because you're doing it through the power of my Holy Spirit. I'll give you the wisdom. I'll give you the words. Not to say that he can't use an education. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the emphasis might be wrong. Nowhere does the Lord say, yeah, really work, get a good job with a great benefits package and stuff, then you'll be well taken care of while you serve me. Does he teach that? No. He says, you don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat or where you're going to live. You go and do what I asked you to do and I'll take care of you. That's what he says. And I could, for sake of time, I'm not going to pick each one of them apart. The point is, are we valuing the things that matter? Eternity. So there's going to be two points to the message today and I think you have notes in your bulletin there. One side will be one of the points and I think the other side, that's how Bev did it, is the other one. 
I want to look at two things that may give us some, some balance or clarity to the idea, this idea of following Christ. The first is the cost of Christ's call, follow me. The second is Christ treasured above all else and worthy of our devotion. <clears throat> Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. We'll start there. It says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and, and I will make you fish for men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, Come and follow me. And immediately they left their boats and their father, and they followed him. Even Jesus' simple call to his disciples, Follow me, contained radical implications for their life. Following him was not something they could just add on to their existing plans and agendas. All that was Jesus when Jesus said follow me, he was asking them to abandon their comforts, all that was familiar to them, all that was natural for them. He was asking them to abandon their careers to put those literally on hold. Now, just set, set down what you're doing. Mending your nets for your career, for your livelihood is not as important as me. Set it down and follow me. He's asking them to put their careers on hold, to drop everything they were doing to prioritize him. He was asking them, this is, this is mind-boggling, these next two statements. He was asking them to reorientate their entire life, life's work, business, whatever you want to call it, around discipleship to him. Their life was to be completely changed and tweaked around discipleship to him. Their plans and dreams were now being swallowed up in his. All of their plans and dreams are being swallowed up in his. Wow. Man, how would we handle that? I, it was, it's a hard pill to swallow. I, how would we handle it? We get unhappy when anything, God-related or not, starts infringing on our comforts or our our plans for our future or for our children or for our business or anything. We get uncomfortable when our plans are being messed with. Okay? Jesus was asking his followers to leave certainty for uncertainty, safety for danger, self-preservation for self-denunciation. Don't promote self. Don't prioritize self. Deny yourself, choose me, promote me, prioritize me. I hear this verse a lot quoted. We need to take up our cross and follow him. It's a partial verse, actually. It's Matthew sixteen twenty four. But we often seem to leave out what he said right before this statement, which is what? Deny. Deny. 
You see, we cannot take up your cross and follow him the way he intended unless we are first willing and ready to deny ourself. That means dying to... And that is so hard to do. I do not like to deny myself. But Christ is saying, you're doing it for me. I'm worthy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he writes, The first call that every Christian experiences is the call to abandon himself and all the attachments of this world that he lives in. The entire theme of the book is summed up in one sentence. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the theme of the book. Let's look at Luke chapter 9. I'm cheating because I have it already marked. (laughs) We'll start with verse 57 and go to 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you are to go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my home. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hands to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You know, in this text, it almost seems like Christ is, Jesus is trying to talk these guys out of following him. He's certainly not making it very easy. He's not like, oh yeah, sure, come, I'm loving, I'm forgiving. It'll be great. No. Jesus is clearly making a point here. Following me comes at a cost. Discipleship to Christ needs to go beyond what we think we are able to do for God or what is within our means to do for God. That should already be happening. Anything we think we can do and is in our means to do, we should be doing it already. No. Discipleship needs to be hands off. Us hands off. And saying, here's my life, God. Do what you can do with it. Then all of a sudden, the sky's the limit. It's a game changer. Use all that I have the way that you intend to see it used. Ouch. That means all that we've invested so much time and energy into and our toys and our time and our priorities and our energies and everything. Because when the Lord takes all that, man, He can do some amazing stuff with it. You see, apart from a few exceptions, there is very little cost to following Christ for Christians in this country. not saying there isn't, but there's very little. Now that is changing, and that will continue to change. We are living in interesting days. It's going to get much more difficult. And I believe there is a lot more suffering coming for those of us who claim the name of Christ. 
And with that suffering will come a refining. That persecution will refine the church. Now, I've been teaching with the youth on suffering and being ready because it's coming. And one particular youth said, oh, I don't like this teaching. I don't, I don't like, I don't want to suffer. And the point is, I don't want to suffer. None of us want to suffer. But in my life, when I look, the times that I suffered the most, that I was persecuted the most, that I hurt the most, those are the times that I grew spiritually in leaps and bounds. There's a spiritual maturity that only comes through suffering. Not through comfort, not through ease. So, there is minimal suffering here. And it, for, for furthermore, it seems that many churches, in order to market Jesus and their church to the masses, they have watered down his message, right? Promoting a message and a program that is palatable, that is non-offensive, and that is entertaining. This is happening around us. Strong on all the blessings of following Jesus, but weak on dealing with sin in our life, being broken and repentant before Him, denying ourselves, and living sacrificially for His honor and glory. Very weak on that. Not saying this church. Praise the Lord for Bill and Jim and Bob and... and These guys that teach our Sunday school class. We're teaching these things. But many places they're not. Many churches are bending and compromising on truth so that they can be more inclusive. This is adding to the problem. We already don't have a right perspective on discipleship. And then this is just adding to the problem. The palatable, palatable, non-confrontational message. Not dealing with the sin and... Repentance and turning away from those things that so easily entangle us. Jesus was different. He always went right to the heart of the matter. And He always dealt with sin. Jesus never changed His message, making it more appealing so He could draw in bigger crowds. He never did it. He never candy-coated what discipleship would cost in order to gain acceptance, the acceptance of His followers. Jesus would say things like this, Luke fourteen twenty-six. You don't have to turn there. I have it. If anyone would come after me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife and his children, brother and sister, yes, and even his own life is not worthy of me. Wow. Matter of fact, this whole passage from 26 to 34 in Luke chapter 14, Christ is saying, don't be all eager to declare your willingness to follow me until you first take careful inventory of what it will cost you. Many are eager eager to follow Christ today, but as soon as following Him starts infringing on their own life choices, then it's a different story. Well, now He's cutting into what, telling me what I can and should do with my life, and my, my time, and my money. This is a call to choose Him above family and friends, livelihood and possessions, all those things we hold on to and find so worthwhile. 
Luke twenty or Luke nine twenty three and twenty four, and this is my. It's paraphrased. Don't think that I'm actually reading scripture, Roy. I just wanted to say that for you. <laughs> this is this is Mark saying this, Roy. But the message is still clear. Luke nine twenty three and twenty four. If you are going to be worthy of me, you must deny your own desires, pick up an instrument of torture reserved only for the vilest of criminals, and follow me. That's what he's saying. How about John fifteen? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will most assuredly persecute you. If they hated me, they will also hate you. Matthew ten sixteen through eighteen, Jesus says, "I'm sending you out as a sheep amongst wolves. You're going out sheep for the slaughter." Thanks, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that. We need to be okay with that. Are we okay with that? That he's sending us out as helpless little sheep for the slaughter, basically. He says we need to be okay with that. He told one man in Luke, oh, he knew the heart of this man. And he went right to the issue. He said, go, sell everything you own. Everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then you come and follow me. Wow. And it says the man walked away sad because he had so many things. I've lived in the States 22 years now, I think. Out of my 42 years, 43 almost. And one thing I have found to be true, whether this is true for you or not, I don't know. But one thing I have found to be true is American Christians are way too tied to their stuff. I don't know how else to say it. But it's true. How attached are we to all of our stuff? What are we not willing to let go of for the cause of Christ? Because we're supposed to let go of it all. The reality is this. In everything we've just read, Jesus is asking every single one of us to love him with such devotion that even our closest relationships in this world and our most prized possessions in this world seem like hatred in comparison to our overwhelming love and commitment to Him. This love and devotion to Him needs to trump everything. It needs to trump it all. It needs to trump the kids. It needs to trump the grandkids. It needs to trump the home and all the investments there. The retirement, it needs to trump it. It needs to trump the Super Bowl party that we've been planning forever. It needs to trump the fishing trip or the hunting trip. Those, nothing wrong with any of that. Those are all wonderful. But when it comes down to what is priority, those go first. Even if we've been planning them for six months, they go. He's priority. 
And that's hard. That's hard to do. At least for me. This is what I've been learning. I'm, I'm excited about it. And somewhat uh, unexcited about it, too. I'll be honest. Thanks, Lord, for teaching me this. Now, now that I have more light, I have more responsibility to live it. So, Okay. You see, I don't think the guy in Luke 9, 57 really understood what he was saying. Right? It reminds me of Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 23, or 20 to 23. The son, James and John, sons of uh, Zebedee. The mom comes up to Jesus, let, let my son be on your right and left in your kingdom. My sons. And they were like, yeah, Jesus, yeah. And you know what Jesus says? You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink this cup of suffering? And the boys were like, yeah, we can. If you read it. And Jesus said, indeed, you will. And if I'm not mistaken, every single disciple, and I could be wrong, but every disciple but one died a martyr's death. When Acts 1.8 says, and you will be my witnesses, that word witnesses means my martyr. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm just going to witness with my life at work. That's great. Do that too. It's a whole lot heavier than that. It means you will be my martyrs for my name's sake. Let's go to point number two. Christ treasured above all else and worthy of our devotion. Let me read to you who Jesus is. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. And He is the final Amen. The final authority. Oh, I love that. He is the bread of life. Christ, our Creator, our Deliverer, our everlasting God. From eternity past to eternity future, He is the Good Shepherd, the Great High Priest, the Holy One. He is the image, the exact representation of the invisible God. He is the judge of the living and of the dead. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is majesty, He is majestic, and He is mighty. No one compares to Him, the only begotten Son of the Father. Full of grace and full of truth. He is the power of God, the resurrection and the life. He is the supreme sacrifice, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the very Word of God made flesh. Amen. And yet, it seems we have reduced Him to a poor, desperate Savior who needs us to accept Him. Am I wrong? As if Jesus needs to be accepted by us, He does not need our acceptance and He does not need our approval. Wow. He does not need us to argue or defend His character. I was just teaching this to my youth today. Jesus does not need you or me at all. We need Him. I am not indispensable. And my ministry is not indispensable. Jesus in a minute could raise up a hundred people to do what I'm doing. He and He alone is indispensable. We need Him. 
for every breath we breathe. Your heart is beating at this very moment because Jesus is giving it rhythm. And if for a moment he stopped, so would you and I. Western Christianity has minimized the glory and the supreme majesty and the authority of Jesus. This watered-down Jesus and this watered-down gospel, which is commonplace in many churches. Praise the Lord it isn't here, but it's commonplace in many churches. And if it's commonplace in here, let's deal with it. Let's get it out. Because it shouldn't be. But this is toxic. Many churches in America has made following Jesus popular. I can even say politically correct now. Jesus is just something else we tack on to our already self-absorbed, self-centered lives. For the younger people in here, maybe some of you older ones wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Some of you guys are pretty techy. We add Jesus to our lives like we add another app to our smartphone. And I'm telling you, it's no different. And we look and... You know, the truth is this. We look and we go, oh, cool. The Jesus app's free. And we download it. Right? Because salvation is free. So we're like, oh, awesome. I'm going to download the free Jesus app. It's not like that. Okay? We shouldn't be comfortable with Christ's call to follow him. It is not a call to comfort or ease. The road Christ walked was not an easy road. It cost him everything. You see, salvation is free. But discipleship will cost you everything. And that, that's incredibly hard to say. Because it means we need to give everything. We don't deserve... Uh, sorry... We don't worship or follow a Jesus who is okay with nominal devotion. We don't serve a Jesus who wants us to be balanced lest we appear too extreme, taking unnecessary risks, financial, physical, or emotional. When it comes to following Him, I'm talking about. He wants us to be wise. I'm not talking about that. You know my heart. I'm talking about abandonment to Him. Financial, physical, emotional risks should not be in the equation. When it comes to following Christ, when He says jump, we should be saying, okay, how high? I'm ready. Or maybe I'm not. Many come to Jesus with the attitude, let me hear what you have to say, then I will decide whether or not I like it. If we approach Jesus that way, you will never hear what He has to say. Christ willingly took upon himself the cross. His death was not just some angry mob that got out of control that he was powerless to do anything about. In the Gospel of John, we see Christ said, I have authority to willingly lay down my life and to take it up again. Nobody's doing anything that I'm not letting happen here. Luke 9.51, just six verses earlier in this text, um, we see 
it says this, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Resolutely showing strong determination and purpose. We see here that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem where a cross was waiting for him. When Jesus is praying, asking his father if this cup of suffering could pass him by, it is not because he is afraid of what some Roman soldiers are going to do to him. Jesus is not sweating blood in the garden because he is a coward, unwilling to face what is coming. That's not what's going on here. No. He is a Savior choosing to endure His Father's divine wrath. The cup that He is asking to pass Him by, if possible, is a cup filled with the winepress of God's wrath. God's holy fury towards sin. Something we cannot even really wrap our minds around. How much God hates sin. Because if we could, we'd do it a lot less. Jesus is about to willingly endure all that we and all of humanity deserve in our sin. One preacher put it this way, and I'll, and I'll read it, and I, I don't know who he was to this day, but I sure like the way he put it. He said, it is like you and I are standing in front of a dam 10,000 miles high, 10,000 miles wide. This dam is filled to the bursting with water. It's splashing over the top. And in an instant, the dam breaks. It lets loose and it is rushing a turret towards you and towards me. And right before the water is going to completely overtake us, completely consume us, the ground in front of it opens up and swallows every drop. So in the same way, in a much greater way, you and I stand before a holy God. We are deserving and going to get holy, eternal judgment in our sin. Or justice, as I like to say it. Because I'm just getting justice. But Jesus Christ stepped in our place resolutely and willingly. He goes to the cross. He drinks down every drop of the entire cup of God's wrath, and he turns it over and he cries out, It is finished. We must understand the cost and the value of following Jesus in light of the cross. Right? Because if we compare it to anything else, whoop de doo da day. Christ intentionally and purposely chose the road to the cross, fully aware of where it would lead him. How often do we willingly and purposefully choose the tougher road? The road of extreme faith, the road of discomfort, the road of want, or the road of suffering. I mean, normally we're, we're, we're trying to make sure, we, we want to get from, from birth to death... Death, death, sorry. Birth to death in the most comfortable, easy, simplest, stress-free way we can. Is that not true? That's not going to happen if you're going to be a disciple of Christ. 
Dorothy Sayers made this statement in regards to hardship and suffering, and I quote her. It's awesome. For whatever reason God chose to make a man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has gone through the whole of the human experience from trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worth while. Wow. That's my Jesus. Is he all of that to us? Is he worth all of this to us? Can we say, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, and I will do what you want me to do? And mean it. We can say it. But can we mean it? Because then when he says two weeks later, okay, I want you to sell your boat and use it for that ministry in Africa to drill that well. <laughs> you know, then it's, then it's hard. Or, okay, I want you to go. You know, it's hard. Is he worth all of this to us? Coming to the Lord Jesus is more than a means to an end. He is the end. He is our very life itself, it says in Colossians 3, 4, right? Colossians 1, 27, we don't come to Jesus to get... Uh, or Colossians 1, 27, what does it say? This is our hope of glory, right? We don't come to Jesus... Actually, it's not up. Oh, it is up there. Okay. We don't come to Jesus to get things. No, we come to Jesus to get Jesus. That's why we come to Jesus. This is what needs to be being preached. Not that you'll get forgiveness and, and, and he's a God of 5,000 chances and all that. And all that's true. But there's more to that. He is the one we want. He is the one we need. In him we have everything we need and in him we have everything we want. He is enough. The question is, do we believe that He is enough? Do I believe that He is enough? Or do I try to fill my life with all these things that I find satisfying? That to turn around and find out they're really not that satisfying. Do the priorities of our lives demonstrate that He is enough? Jesus' command for us to follow him. Oh, good, I'm almost done here. Jesus' command for us to follow him does not prompt us to mere reflection. The message of Christ requires a response. A response that goes beyond what is he saying, but more specifically, what does he want me to do? 
What does he want me to do? What does he require out of me? What needs to change? And then begin working to change it. Through this study, I know that the Lord radically wants my thinking to change. But beyond that, beyond my thinking changes, He wants me to go beyond that and He wants me to start making steps, taking steps, so that my lifestyle changes as well. What this looks like Now, this is the key here. What this looks like for each individual family and person is going to be very different than what it's going to look like for my family, for Kathy and I and the kids. I'm not saying that it's all going to look the same. You're going to take this message, and this is the awesome thing about the power of the Holy Spirit. He'll take this message, and He will challenge you and convict you in areas, and it will look very different. Right? So how it looks for you, I don't know. For us, we as a family, we're evaluating all areas of our life. Our priorities, our free time, our money, etc. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Put him and the kingdom first, and he'd take care of all the other things. Paraphrased, Roy. Put him and the kingdom first. I think the real one is seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all these other things shall be added unto you or something like that. But the intent is put him first and the put him in the kingdom first and he'll take care of the rest. All the other things, he'll take care of them. Do we really believe that if we put him in his kingdom first, then he will care take care of all of the other concerns we have? Because that's what he's saying. Put me first. Put my kingdom first. Prioritize me first and all that I desire of you and everything else, all your other concerns, I will take care of. That's what he's saying. Do we believe it? You see, this is kind of cool. Just because we live in a country of What? Excess? No, it's not the word I need. Just because we're really blessed in this country, and all of us are blessed, praise the Lord, because it's Him, does not mean we cannot still live with this attitude of denying self, this selfless attitude to Christ. We can still do it. This is cool. You see, the more that we can give up, and this is why our family is evaluating, and who cares about our family? This is what between you and the Lord. But the more that we can deny ourselves and give up is the more that we can give away to the honor and the glory of our Lord and King. Right? Because He is worthy of it all. We're almost done. I'm going to leave you with two questions. Are you and I's life ambitions and plans being swallowed up in His? When you look forward to all your ambitions and your plans as a family and a young couple or an old couple or a grandchild, 
and all the plans you have for your home and your property and all that stuff, are all those things being swallowed up into his plans? And then the last question before we pray. Is our life, our time, our energy and our resources going to the advancement of his kingdom, his will, or or are they going to the advancement of our will? That's it. Let's pray. Praise Him. Lord Jesus, thank You, thank You, thank You. You don't just want some of what we are or some of what we have. You want all of who we are and all of what we have. It is all yours anyway. It is simply on loan to us, Lord, that we may use it for your honor and glory. I pray that we do that. God, forgive us when we, when I, who cares about we out here, forgive me when I am selfish and self-centered and living for me which is natural. God, you are our life. Apart from you, we are nothing. Help us to never forget that beautiful, simple truth. In Jesus' name, amen.